Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the strike underway among uh, Hollywood writers, movie and TV writers under the Writers Guild of America, who, as of um, last week when this episode airs, have gone on strike um, as a means of bringing leverage to their contract negotiations with the AMPTP, which is the acronym that broadly stands for the movie and TV industry. The usual players, Warner Brothers, HBO, Apple, all the stars are here, so to speak. (laughs) This is the first time in, I guess, 15 years now that the Writers Guild of America has gone on strike. It's a big deal. Like, and not just because your favorite TV shows might have to take a hiatus. You know, this is something significant, and we're going to explore why over the course of the next hour. And and they might not have to take a hiatus. We'll we'll get into that eventually. <laughs> yeah, I, every yeah. executive is hoping they won't. I I don't want to get into too much detail regarding the last strike, but I remember that being the first time that I knew that creative professionals other than actors because i knew about sag it wasn't sag after yet you know that 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 happened later but i knew about sag i didn't know that writers and directors and the rest of them were unionized i think i knew that robert rodriguez had once gone non-union on a on a production because nobody would like insure him for something i forget what it was but that was about it and so that was kind of a shock and I was also in college and didn't know a damn thing at the time. So it just kind of passed by. The writers, what they are striking over this time is a, a laundry list of things. None of which are surprising if you follow what Warner Brothers Discovery and Amazon and Netflix and Apple and, as you said, all the big players, all the names the the red carpet stars as an aside today my alma mater boston university announced Mm -hmm. that the commencement speaker for this year's graduation will be david zaslav president ceo of warner brothers who um yeah like strike aside has been noted for doing just a horrendous job in governing that brand these are the geniuses behind like deciding HBO's name shouldn't be an HBO streaming service going forward. Cuts around the board. Wonderfully done. Congrats to my alma mater. It is if your goal is to increase the share price and, and profit shareholders, which is the official excuse that the studios are giving for all the changes they want to make. Those changes include things like 
these some of these things are already happening and they want it to proliferate further, but reduce the number of writers that need to be working on a show. There's some stuff there about, especially for late night comedy and variety shows, which don't have a minimum pay scale. They did offer to have one. They did offer a pay floor, but then they also wanted to make that a day rate. So there's a lot of... Just for the uh, listeners, explain what you mean by day rate. So if you're familiar with the concept of day labor, which you might not be, a day rate is you are hired on a per day basis and you are paid for that amount of work. You're not on a salary. You're not on a contract. You literally work for that day and you might get hired for a number of days in a row, but you're still only getting paid this floor day rate. And this is what they wanted to do for, for example, like shows like Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, shows like that, which historically have been some of the worst paying jobs uh, in the biz, unless you're lucky enough to be like one of the head writers. So Alex Press in a Jacobin article I've got here called TV writers say they're striking to stop the destruction of their profession. I think sums it up in one word and it's a horrible word and I hate that we have to use this word. But they are trying to gigify writing. That That's the main idea. They want to turn the incredible success of 72-point air quotes around success. None around incredible. It literally is. But of Uber and DoorDash and Shipped and uh, Instacart. And uh, I'm trying to think of other gig economy. Uh, we work and whatnot that we've had to deal with on this show. And a fiver. I think we were these. still recording in studio when we were talking about shipped. I'm not sure it's possible. anybody but the most diehard punching out heads are going to get that <laughs> reference because they haven't exactly blown up in the years since. Oh, they're not shipped shape anymore. At any rate, they want to turn writing for shows into that. And Part of the irony is that it often already is. A lot of your favorite shows, like Abbott Elementary, The Bear, have writers who are writing in apartments without heat, finishing episodes in the library because they can't afford internet or it goes out in their apartment building. They don't get ever invited to the set to like meet any of the people working. Like Already, writing for a lot of shows is a real bath is what you're doing. You're hoping, you're scrapping for one of the last few positions where maybe one day you get to be a showrunner and then you might be able to make some actual money. And then, of course, I think you might be you you might be raising your finger to bring up the issue of hopefully, hopefully, because if not, I'm going to look like a real dummy. Residuals, maybe? Oh, no. No. Okay. I was going to... Quote some from this uh, Jacobin article, yes, specifically it. from Adam Conover, who you might know from the show Adam Ruins Everything. Um, he's a member of the WGA Negotiating Committee and spoke with Alex Press for this article. Quote, when it comes to the working conditions that studios won't touch, a good example is that screenwriters have a huge problem with free work, explains Conover. Screenwriters are paid in two big chunks one at the beginning and one at the end, which gives the producer the power to 
hold the last payment over them and get them to do extra drafts before they release that payment. The unions have sought to rectify the problem by proposing that screenwriters be paid weekly. It's a zero-cost proposal, but the studios refuse to offer a counter. It's because they like getting the free work and they like having the power over us, says Conover. And that has been the tenor of the negotiations. Everything the writers have asked for, and you can find this on social media and in some of the articles like uh, Alex Press's, everything the writers have asked for, the studios have basically said just no. It's a blanket no. They haven't really – intransigence was one of the words used to describe them because not all of these companies have the same goals or work the same way. And their only hope here is to stay united and just offer a blanket no and hope that the writers will knuckle under because otherwise they could be exposed to certain wedge issues. Now, my turn for an aside. Can we just talk about the fact that it's freaking awesome that a dude who used to work at College Humor is now a (laughs) member of the Writers Guild of America negotiating committee? Like, I'm not going to lie. When Adam Ruins Everything started, this was not the path I expected him to take. So I'm impressed. I don't say that a lot on this show. So positive reinforcement for once. The, the article also notes that he brought up a lot of these points and mentioned David Zaslav by name and by salary on Get him. Get a him. CNN show, which, again, owned and governed by David Zaslav. So, you know. And, and the, the news anchor told him, you may have just ruined my career because you ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> that is presence of mind. This article quotes his salary at $250 million a year, which is a gobsmacking figure. It's like five Roger Goodells. It's criminal. Like, Roger Goodell is supposed to take a bullet for 30 of the worst people in America and all their friends. David Saslav doesn't have to do that. He should be getting paid. Underpaid. Yeah, Roger Goodell is – I can't believe we're first show to ever say it. Roger Goodell is severely underpaid. God, Commissioners are workers too. Do not quote that. Do not quote that. Cut that. Editor, oh my please. God. Do not air that. Anyway. Writing. On writing. So. We were talking about writers not making enough money as it is. The other problem that you have is – residuals, which is when your work is reused, you get some money. This is what we tend to call royalties, uh, just as in common parlance. But the thing about it is that residuals for streaming, for reasons we're going to get into next segment, are not nearly as lucrative as the ones for traditional TV and movie shows. And so again, writers, like every show that we talk about now, it's, it's just every show now. It's The Bear, Abbott Elementary, Succession. Dear God, Succession. I can't even think of any other ones because that's the three that everyone I know talks about constantly. But any of these that's picking up awards, picking up critical uh, uh, acclaim and gathering steam and viewers, all of those writers are really getting the crap end of the shovel and their best hope is to one day either make it big with their own script idea that they can turn into a show and then run that show, because that's the other thing. We now have a culture of mini writer's rooms where a showrunner 
which I've said this, I don't think I've said this on air before, but I've been saying it a lot recently because of this strike. You shouldn't know who a showrunner is. Like, a showrunner is just supposed to be the chief of staff. They're just supposed to kind of make sure it, it's a producer. Their job is to make sure that things get done. And now... There's maybe a broader take about how the uh, rise of showrunners correlates with a broader um, celebration of for... managerial status and mm-hmm. managerial mm-hmm. work. Yeah. Management, I should say. Bosses. Everyone wants to be a boss. Nobody wants to be a creative. They want to be Fantasy a boss. Fantasy owners, you know, we've mm-hmm. been down this road before. And in this case, what that's resulted in is a lot of shows where the showrunner will do the writing with one or a couple of writers instead of there being a writer's room as more traditional productions have had for ages. And this, on the one hand, this does lead to like, well, that's the thing. We don't even know because in a lot of these cases, these are really secretive. Like, very recently, Tony Gilroy got a lot of praise for his show running on Andor, but I don't know off the top of my head what that situation was like. I know that he had multiple writers because he's talked about it, but I don't know how many of them there were. And the fact that I don't know is kind of its own problem. <laughs> like it, yeah. it's a... Well, mini room here, like the term is used as a contrast to the old setup where studios would pay, you know, X number of writers, you know, several. I don't, the exact number, I don't have a good well, one to throw on. I don't think there was like a floor. Right. It was just like, you You usually, so I'll tell you what, I'll mention by way of contrasting here, we have another article from the LA Times, I believe, it's an opinion piece, from Rick Cleveland, who is an Emmy-winning TV writer, screenwriter, and playwright. And it's called, Want to Understand the Writer Strike? Start with a New Writer's Room. He just kind of talks about his career and talks about how the career that he has had is now impossible to have. And it's something like, this man eventually did become a writer and an executive producer, so he did eventually climb the ranks into something that even now can be kind of lucrative in a way that being a writer, not necessarily, but he's standing with the angels on this one. He talks about how when he started writing for House of Cards on Netflix, Netflix offered him less money per episode than what he was making 12 years before that at his first job when he was starting out. So he said, no, absolutely not. Netflix blinked, quote unquote, and gave him his per episode rate. But then... House of Cards had fewer episodes and it took longer to produce those episodes. So he was actually making less money than he was making for his usual rate because he couldn't work on anything else. Now, what studios have then gone on to do is they have signed writers to 20 week contracts. So you produce, you write all the episodes in those 20 weeks and then you're looking for a job again the same kind of precarity that we've talked about with tech workers, with service workers, uh, with the video game sector, uh, with journalism. The entire economy. It sucks. Yeah. There's a, actually a Vanity Fair article that is linked to with the, the, the term mini room that I started scrolling through here. And, you know, 
This quote caught my eye. Uh, Gina Welch compares TV writing in the current moment to a polar bear dealing with the effect of global warming. Quote, jumping from one melting ice flow to another. The issue of instability came up during recent Writers Guild of America negotiations with writers voicing concerns that the mini room approach could allow studios to circumvent the standard compensation structure. Some mini rooms function as a sort of extended paid job interview, a probationary period with no promise of future work. Sometimes writers end up in limbo contractually or unofficially on hold as they wait to hear whether a show will be picked up. All of this bad. I know that a lot of coverage of the strike from people that have souls because there's a lot of it from people who are completely soulless. Let's be real clear about that. A lot of it has focused on the fact that the popular perception of creative labor for TV and movies was that if you made it, if you, if you got a show picked up, if you wrote for an award-winning show, that kind of thing, that you had it made. That, you know, you, you'd done it. You could, you could continue to work, but you would always have these residuals from the work that you'd already done. And you could just kind of sit back and wait for that passive income while you built up more of it by working on other shows. And I don't know about you. I, I think my image of it was a little bit more realistic than that. But that still seemed, you know, from my point of view, as just a regular working stiff, that seemed like a pretty good deal comparatively you know the the idea that one day you might get to sit back and just enjoy the fruits of your labor and i would hazard a guess and i am not an expert on this subject by any means so if i'm wrong i'm wrong but i would hazard a guess that the residuals and royalties came along at least partly because of the demise of the old school studio system because often those writers were under contract in much the same way as like baseball players would have been to one studio, the same way that actors or directors would be. And you didn't really get to get out of that contract until they fired you because labor laws are hell are hell in this country because it doesn't respect workers. So I suspect the residuals and royalties regime was kind of a way to buy them off into thinking like, here's some independence from the studios, but Actually, we'll get to determine what those rates are, and you know we're certainly going to pick them to advantage us because it's something like I think again this is this is from the Rick Cleveland article, but he mentions that ooh, where's this figure? Uh, so he says when he won his Emmy in 2000, the corporations that made up AMPTP made about five billion. Twenty-one years later, that figure is 28 billion, so they've quintupled their their revenue but writers are actually seeing a smaller cut of that both in absolute terms and in relative terms like they're making less money even before you adjust for things like how much is the studio getting how much is due to inflation that kind of thing like it's not it's not a livable job for a whole lot of people i know we've been down this road before too i know we've talked about the fundamental disdain and disrespect for creative labor, but it is staggering because I thought if nothing else, at least in a country that does not offer bread whatsoever, I figured that at least the circuses would be remotely well-paid, but no, not even that. Yeah. There's a figure given in this, um, 
in these Times article about the strike, which quotes from the Los Angeles Times that, uh, quote, the median weekly pay for writer producers declined 23% over the last decade when adjusting for inflation, according to a WGA survey. When accounting for inflation, screenwriter pay declined 14% in the last five years, the report said. You know, not good. Not what you want no. to see. No, it is it is obscene what the studios are doing to I mean to everything because they do this to their own staff, people who are not in, you know, creative labor. They do this to their secretaries and their, you know, custodians, custodial staff and the people that, you know, I don't even know at this point, and their lawyers and it, they do this to every kind of worker. They 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 pump as much labor as they can out of them. And the moment they don't need them anymore, they throw them out the door. Uh, or the moment that they decide that they're not going to work for free anymore, they show them the door. And they do this under the excuse of, well, it's what Wall Street wants. Wall Street is demanding exponential growth. And because we have a country that is built on 250 years of nothing but political corruption, the only legal responsibility any of these companies have is to their shareholders. So even if David Saslov tomorrow woke up and had a complete change of heart, first he'd have to get one, and decided that he was you know, going to pay writers fairly and everything, that could get him fired from his job. That could get that is one of the few things that could get him removed from his job as you know cushy CEO of a major studio because it would be a shareholder revolt. So the entire system is built around abusing the labor of the people who frankly are doing the most work. We saw this already with the IATSE strike a few years ago. I mean, talk about underappreciated labor. No one knows. Like, I'm sorry. 90% of the people listening to this do not know what a best boy does. I don't. So it's a lighting technician. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, talk about underappreciated labor. They were facing some of the same things. Writers, at least sometimes, you know their names. You know what they've been involved with. You can kind of say, like, you know, I like shows that are. But now, in fact, even that's a problem because now you don't know who the writers that like Noah Hawley is porting with him to different productions are. You just know that it's his thing. So he's going to run the show. You have no idea who's working under him. I guess they've always been somewhat anonymous, but it, they shouldn't be They're They're the people writing the scripts. Like that's what goes on the screen. Adam Conover again has helpfully posted on Twitter, like a, breakdown of what the WGA has proposed number wise and what the counter offer has been from the studios and uh, like under the category of episodic television, the WGA wants like minimum staffing of six writers per show. And there we go. You know, and that number gets bigger if the show has more episodes and based on various factors and on the other side of the table under counter offer here, it's uh, rejected our proposals, refused to make a counter. You know, this is the sort of intransigence that writers are up against. The studios are really adamant that, you know, you aren't going to be able to have comfortable work in this industry. 
They want all of us scrounging. It's it's an extension of how they treat the rest of us. And I think they're depending on the reaction of a lot of people being, you know, I want my shows. I want my movies. And a lot of people are having that exact reaction. You can log on to social media, and I'm sure if you're watching television coverage of this stuff, you're getting a whole lot of people who are complaining about why writers who get to write for a living would strike over working conditions. I mean, surely it's not that hard a job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this country has always found it easy to divorce creation, like the the product, from the people who actually had to work on it. it it's always found it easy to say, you know, I want to watch my Marvel movies, so I don't particularly care how the writers and actors and uh, motion technicians and all of those people. We talked about this with Taika Waititi making fun of his own movie. I don't want to have to care about the work that those people put in. I just want to see my pew pew lasers. And there's been a fair amount of that, but I think there's less, hopefully, encouragingly, there seems to be a little bit less of that than I was expecting. I think there's a, maybe a common perception that like Hollywood writers is, you know, a small club. It, couldn't be that many people that we're talking about but number of people on strike here is like twelve thousand. it's if my memory of statistics is right it is there are more people on this strike than there are working in coal mines across the united states of america in the current year yeah but if you work in a coal mine you wear a hard hat so that's a real job remember cultural signifiers are what matters this is true this is true um which is not to say that by the way To be clear, we have to say this because we live in the United States and cultural signifiers are what matters. Not to say coal mining isn't a real job either. It's just, you know, we're the excuse is always that if your job can be done on a computer, then it's, you know, not a real job. Right. There are some who will, like you said, listen to the fact that there's a strike and react with, derision or scoff at the idea that these spoiled Hollywood people could possibly have an issue worth going on strike about. But as you've said, like this is what they want for all of us. These studios are only carrying out the business model that has let them be successful in other industries. Oftentimes like it's the same company, it's Amazon, it's Apple, Increasingly, the media companies are also companies with significant ties in other areas of our lives with a lot of people under the banners of these workplaces and at the whims of these same bosses. Yeah, it's 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 the cartelization of the American economy. Like when we this country has become a cartoon in a lot of ways. And one of the ways in which it has most come to resemble like the version of the US in RoboCop or something like that is that now we just have 12 companies that do everything from tech to media to employing people to do some sort of gig work and it's just you know you you survive by engaging with them in in different ways you bring up cartoons i want to note here just something i came across in the research for this episode of- Children's animation writing, not under the WGA. They are under the Animators Guild. And and the Animators Guild is made up primarily of non-writers, and those contracts are 
historically have been significantly less lucrative than WGA contracts. And there was actually an article from last year about WGA members pushing studios to stop trying to pressure animation projects under animators guild contracts rather than WGA, you know, with the idea that if you're a WGA writer, you should get paid a WGA rate for your work, even if it is a children's cartoon. But studios often treat like a WGA contract as a non-starter for these projects. And we should mention, probably before we take a break here, that one of the things that's getting really interesting, because it is a difference between this and The Last Strike, is that in a few weeks, on June 30th, SAG-AFTRA and the Directors Guild, the DGA, so that's Screen Actors Guild and American, what is it? American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. SAG-AFTRA and DGA's contracts run out on June 30th, and there's a very real chance that they will join this strike too. IATSE can't because they're, well, I mean, they could, they could wildcat strike, but uh, I think they would have a really hard time getting yeah. getting that together right now, given that they just went through a, pardon me, a labor fight. But if the directors and actors join, things are going to get real interesting real fast for those studios. And they're going to have to turn to some wild ass remedies. Thank you for uh, leaving that cliffhanger for our next segment. Uh, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we will talk about some wild ass remedies. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Scripts! <laughs> Here's normally where I would introduce Lou, but she is unfortunately not able to be with us tonight. Feel better soon. We've been talking about the ongoing Hollywood writer strike uh, that WGA is waging against the movie and television industry. And here we should bring up... Uh, at sort of the midway point of the show that, you know, this has happened before and happened in not too distant memory as well. The last strike by Hollywood writers was the 2007-2008 strike, which lasted for about 100 days that winter. And primarily, you've like on Twitter, at least on my feed, the discourse about that strike has sort of been on reminiscences about, oh, what shows got worse and what shows, you know, had to cut seasons short due to the writer strike. And here's Conan O'Brien spinning his wedding ring on his desk because he <laughs> had no writers to write jokes for him, which is, you know, all well and good to wax nostalgic about. But here I'm punching out, it's worth talking about what the terms of that strike and the eventual agreement were because inevitably they set the stage for the current one. You know, you can't get here without having gone through there. There's an LA times article uh, with the headline tensions from the last writer strike cash a shadow over current labor fight. It's noteworthy here that 
the big sticking point in advance of the 2007 negotiations was DVD residuals, a thing that has almost entirely evaporated in the 15 years since. It's only after backing down on their demands for DVD revenue that the writers focused on what at the time was a tiny sliver of the overall business, digital media. Yeah. So at the time, DVD residuals were very similar to, were in a position very similar to streaming. The point is there was a market in which studios were making a killing compared to writers in terms of how much they had to pay them. And they were taking advantage of that market. Like VHS and DVD releases were were the big thing. And so everybody had their Frasier box set at the time. You know, who didn't? I mean, uncultured swine, obviously. So the the result of this is, as you said, once they backed down on that, then writers decided, okay, let's take on the digital media, the next big thing, which articles are pains to note that nobody could have predicted how much it would blow up, that at the time, Netflix, they all mentioned this, was still sending you those delicious, precious DVDs in the mail in those red envelopes. So you felt really special. So nobody thought it was going to become the streaming media empire. And everybody figured that it would be essentially just TV, but delivered over the internet. You would still have to watch commercials and you would pay for it like you would a cable subscription, which you have to do now. So actually they got that part completely right. But writers wanted to make sure that they weren't left out of that. And studios, the way that they kind of dealt with that, they kind of tried to do like a, I don't know what the right phrase is. They essentially tried to establish their dominance of that space by regulating it as little as possible. We've talked before about how regulation is, it can be a a double-edged sword in some ways because, you know, obviously the, the rich know how to get around it. That's the whole thing. That's why they're rich, because they cheat. But also, it is often the only way you have to fight back. And in cases like this, like these, studios, corporations, what they're going to try and do is basically say, no, let's have a conversation about it, but let's not set out any specific controls or regulations or policies, because then they know that they will get to set the precedent, which they have done. That that's why streaming residuals are lesser than other kinds of things. They they basically bet that if it did become big, they wanted obviously to be making more money from it than anybody else was, and they were right to bet that way. And structure at the same though. at the same time, writers succeeded in ensuring that the WGA would have jurisdiction over these streaming programs. Because that was a question that would have been up in the air. There is you know, in theory, another outcome here where Netflix and all of these are like the ununionized wild west of media productions because, you know, the rules don't say you have to use WGA staff on this. The rules say you can do whatever you want. So, like, it was a victory for writers. Not that small victories are enough, but, like, to be able to ensure their jurisdiction here is not nothing. No, and it sets up what they're able to do now, which is push on the specific terms of that agreement. So, yeah, it was it was 
prescient of the WGA to to put that together and say, okay, maybe DVD is going to go the way of the Dodo sooner rather than later. So let's focus on this big future thing and let's try to get a long-term win here where we can establish control over this space. I think it also probably helps that they were dealing with you know, they weren't dealing with Amazon. Like they weren't dealing with a bunch of tech companies in this space. Like Apple, I don't think would have been part of the uh, no, alliance at, not the time. at that time. Uh, Netflix would have not really been involved because they weren't producing anything. So that was a good time to do that if you expected tech to get involved because like Adam, tech ruins everything. And they, they've certainly cast a, a long pall over how these negotiations have taken place. Yeah. You know, on the subject of tech, we have to get into the new technology that is really, um, depending on who you ask, either a big looming threat in the current negotiations or a toy squirt gun. Yeah, do you please tell me you have the quotes from the CEO that like businesses hire about this? Because I I don't have the article up in front of me right now, and they are choice. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to talk about AI, and this is a topic that we've covered in the recent past on Punching Out. It's perhaps oddly prescient that we covered AI art and the marvel movie industry vfx labor exploitation in the same episode back in i think it was december Mm -hmm. and now you're seeing with the explosion in belief about the omnipotence of chat gpt and similar ai based text creation tools you know this idea that well if these writers go on strike they will just be replaced by AI. To put some quotes on this, there's a Hollywood Reporter article trying to examine just to what degree AI could really play a role in these talks. And there's a quote here from Amy Webb, founder and CEO of Future Today Institute. Horrible name. Horrible, horrible name. name. I don't know what they do. Can't be good. No. Well, which does long range scenario planning and consultation for fortune 500 companies knew it wouldn't be good. So it knows it does nothing. She notes, quote, I've had a couple of higher level people ask if a strike does happen, how quickly could they spin up an AI system to just write the scripts? And they're serious. And they're serious doing an incredible amount of work in that sentence, um, unlike the executives. Yeah, it, it is. You know, we've talked before on this show about how when like the John Deere employees went on strike, John Deere sent like its accountants and office staff and so on yes, to run the factory. Yes. People got hurt. People got hurt, which it's I think was the, the more time that has happened since I think was meant to be the point. Like they wanted to expose those workers to danger to essentially say, look what you made us do. And much the same way, that is the exact tactic that Hollywood executives are taking with this. They're basically saying, yeah, TV is going to become a complete toilet. 
movies are going to become total toilets. It's all going to be horrible. And it's your fault for going on strike because we're just going to write, we're just going to have AI hand us scripts. And to be clear, writers already thought of that and included it in their demands. They, part of the strike demands, which again, the studio said nothing real in response to, were that AI written scripts could not be, what is it? Uh, They can't be source material. So they can't be treated like the novel that you adapt for something. Because by the way, doing that is paid less than a completely original script, which anybody That's why those are two different awards at the Oscars. Yeah, but having said that, if you if you've ever had to adapt anything, if you've ever had to adapt so much as a lesson plan or a short story, you know this is horse. Uh, this is this is nothing. And then second of all, they can't be used as literary material, meaning that what is it like? They can't be credited with it, like AI that that can't receive a writing credit of any kind. The studios, their response to that. Oh, and also, basically, what the what the WGA is insisting is that AI can be used as research, the same way that you might use a Wikipedia article as a jump-off point. You might say, look at this incredibly cool historical anecdote I found. Let's make a movie about this. Much the same way you might ask ChatGPT, hey, what's, I don't know, the most underrated basketball player of the last 50 years? Let's do a series on him. It's Carmelo Anthony. Wow. Wow. That was that was fast. I can't believe you yeah. made it to the site and asked it that. But you could do that uh, according to the proposal. And what the studios have said is instead, let's have a series of conversations over every so often about the changes in technology, which as somebody who has had a lot of those conversations forced on me by my job is garbage. They are yeah. trying to take your job. I want to quote from the Jacobin article here because Adam Conover has a lot to say on this subject, uh, specifically about these negotiations surrounding AI. Quote, we thought that one would be an easy layup for them since AI is not currently usable in any shape or form. And it's not even clear that it's that its output is copyrightable, says Conover. But the studio's response suggests to the writers that the issue is of greater importance than they'd realized when they began formulating proposals six months ago. Says Conover, quote, it's like if you ask someone, hey, would you agree that you're not going to pull out a gun and shoot me in the stomach? And the person says, quote, I'm not going to agree to that. Suddenly you think, wait, I didn't think you were going to do that, but now I'm worried that you are or else you'd agree to not do it. Yeah. And let's let's be clear. Amy Webb, the CEO of the Future Today Institute, doesn't think that every show can be replaced by AI, even though clearly that's the future today that she wants. She says, and I have to read this because this is... <laughs> Webb doesn't think AI could cross the picket line effectively. Just, just to be clear, AI can't cross the... AI can't do anything. It's a computer. It can't cross the picket line because it's not a member of a union. It's not a worker. It's not a person. Stop treating it like it's freaking data from Star Trek The Next Generation. What character written by actual people and played by an actual person and directed by other actual people? It can't do that. But Webb doesn't think it can do that effectively on most projects. But an exception might be a long-running procedural like Law & Order. 
you've got a massive corpus. It's formulaic. And a lot of the storylines are ripped from the headlines. So you've got the data sources that you need, says Web says, which is number one, bleak, and number two, an incredible burn on Law & Order. CBS has to be just rubbing their hands together at the prospect of churning out some AI-generated um, Big Bang Theory spinoffs, uh, NCIS. some fresh new young Sheldon scripts right here from Jet- ChatGBT. You know, 52 new NCIS franchises. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, most of their audience is asleep during the majority of the show, so you know, it won't really matter. But yeah, it's we've talked before about the supposed impact of AI on these things. And kudos to the writers for realizing the threat that's coming and trying to stop it. Of course, the studios were never going to agree to that because they weren't really like this was never about agreeing to a specific proposal for them. This is the future they want. They want writers to not have jobs. You can't make them a proposal that's going to stop them from wanting that because the only thing they can do is cut labor costs because they're not going to cut David Saslab's outrageous salary that is a crime against humanity. They have to cut somewhere else. They're not going to cut from the executives who do nothing but sit in meetings all day and take two-hour potty breaks and look at their phone constantly and eat hot chip and lie. They're going to take that away from the people doing the actual work because those are the only labor costs you're allowed to cut. So this is coming one way or the, or they're going to try to make this happen one way or the other is the way I should say it. Yeah. Yeah. There is a quote here in this um, Hollywood reporter article about quote, talent lawyer, Darren Tratner notes that a writer is defined in the basic agreement as quote, a person and the WGA could theoretically forbid AI from working on guild projects, but functionally it might not be possible. The reality is, even if you have the strength in numbers and you have the whole guild saying, if you want a WGA project and WGA writers, you can't use AI, we may never know if AI was involved or not, says Tratner. Sometimes a script is revised by a producer, a studio executive, or a director, and that person doesn't take or want credit or a fee. What if that individual revises a script with AI and then just tells the writer, here are some revisions? It's possible no one will know the notes were AI generated. Which is Grim. a reasonable concern, maybe, that like the cat might be out of the bag and there's no way to put it back. But I do think that discerning viewers will be able to notice when there's a certain lacking um, human touch. Yeah, it's what I would say to that is that is an argument, frankly for forbidding anyone from revising a WGA script. Like, what that is, is an argument for letting writers control the entirety of the writing process. Because there is no other way you can guarantee that AI won't be involved. And here's the thing about involving AI. Speaking as an educator, AI is a tool for people who are so deeply insecure in their intellectual or artistic capabilities that they want to cheat at making things. In my workplace, the only reason that we are having a school-wide talk about it is because the computer science department is now afraid that it will take their jobs because ChatGPT can do simple coding tasks. 
that was why we all found out about it. They were gleeful about the idea that it would ruin writing instruction, that kids could just turn in chat GPT written papers and we would be none the wiser. Of course, the English teachers and the language teachers had already talked about it and known about the threat for ages. We had, yeah, it, it was incredible to think that we wouldn't have thought about it first as the people whose jobs were threatened by it and are threatened by it. But ultimately, AI exists as a tool so that soulless, soulless bastards like David Sasseloff can basically pretend to be artists, that they can access the, the, what it would be like to be a screenwriter so that people with no innate talent, but like a conception of what they want to make, but they can't render it in the real world could produce it crucially without doing any of the practice or hard work that makes you an artist. And as somebody who has spent, and I know this is true for both of us, but as somebody who has spent his entire life trying to refine a craft, it is deeply insulting that people would even consider this stuff. Every time I log online and I see people like earnestly engaging with mid journey or stable diffusion or any of these things, it's just, frankly, I mean, I'll get us in trouble with the FCC if I say anything else. Cause it, it's, it, it's really something to see people that you think are like marginally human beings and capable of, you know, engaging with art as opposed to just consuming it. Treat it as product only. No no labor involved whatsoever. There's like one future in which like the fu- that's the future of movies. It's Chat GPT presents Aquaman four. It's Wonder Woman five. I'm running out of comic book characters. I, I mean I would argue it's the present of movies, you know. So I think it was Dave Anthony from uh Dollop. I think it was him, don't quote me on this, who said, even though I'm quoting him, who said we already have ChatGPT movies, they're called MCU movies. And it feels like part of the reason we're at this stage where this is a credible threat is because this is how bad it's gotten. Like we have movies where Kevin Feige just like puts, that throws five darts at a board of every Marvel character ever and goes, there, there's the next script, write that. To somebody getting paid, you know, half what they should be to put up with that kind of demand. And we just put up with it because it's what there is. That's what you're going to see in the movie theaters. That's what's going to dominate all of them. There's a defector headline that kind of captures my thoughts on the whole prospect of AI art and AI script writing, which is um, headline, AI art only looks like art if you don't care. To some extent, like, there will always be schlock on television that is designed just to sell ads or, you know, fill a time slot. But like, if you're somebody who cares about what you're consuming, who is like trying to experience something through art, which even television can be, even the boob tube has proven capable of presenting something about the human experience in ways that AI simply could never because it has never experienced the human experience. I I think consumers have to like be able to say to the industry that actually we think more highly of ourselves than you seem to. We are not going to show up if this is the product, if 
this is not something that like is actually art if this is not something that at the very least is a piece of human labor and ingenuity say what you will about artistic merits you know yeah i i think part of the problem you have there is that and this might just be a population issue the the specific students that i work with but i've seen other people complaining about it from different walks of life not just teachers I don't have any kids that want to be artists anymore. Hmm. I have kids that want to go into the music business. I have kids that want to go into film production. Not even, not, not like cinematography, production. They want to be producers, not writers, not filmographers, not directors, not actors, producers, showrunners. They don't want to be singers. They want to be A&R people. They don't want to be artists. They want to be gallery owners. So they want to be the people, the middle people in charge of getting the creatives to deliver a product. They want to be in charge. They want to be the boss. And uh, I think somebody phrased it as you see a lot more anti-capitalist sentiment, but there's a lot less anti-commercial sentiment. There's a lot more defense of just the mindset that your job in life is secure that bag, whatever means mm. you, you have to, to get it and whatever you do to get that money and to get good money, that's the only thing that matters. It's like the final form of hustle culture. There's no, it, it doesn't even matter if what you make is good anymore. It doesn't even matter if you make anything. In fact, you shouldn't make anything because that takes away from the hustle. The hustle is just doing enough and sucking enough to the sucking up enough to the right people that eventually you get to a point where you're in charge of people sucking up to you. I've seen the take floating around that like generally generationally we don't have a concept of selling out the way that was yes, like same thread. Yeah. So constantly like a thing and a theme of the nineties, even in like nineties TV and movies, you know, the concept of selling out was there. Like it was being discussed and analyzed from any number of angles at that time. And it seems now that the sellouts won, they won the argument such that it was, they. Selling out became the right move. And even for a lot of people, they defend it as the ethical move, which I'm, I have a hard time doing. I'll admit to that. I understand why people want to say it that way, but I just, I don't, you, I think we can have a world where an artist can have a stable artistic career, economic support of some form and be able to make art and be able to make the art that they want to make. They shouldn't have to be subject to the whims of one of the 12 people who run all of America in order to make a living and and the meager living that they're making now for the most part. Because if you're Damien Hurst and you're pasting a bunch of diamonds on a skull or making whatever other trash that guy makes, then the rich like you because you know how to explain that in ways that make their egos feel good and they feel like they're smart. So you'll always make money. But people who are trying to do something that actually matters, and as you said, 
capture something of the human experience, they get left out in the cold because we do not respect them. Fundamentally, American culture, what there is of it, doesn't respect art. And that's where I think you're absolutely right, that consumers have to be willing to say there is a line somewhere. But I think the studios have done a great job at convincing a lot of consumers, have convinced them a lot that this isn't their fight. That they as fans are there to receive the product, like mana from heaven, and that the writers are the people who are supposed to you know, lubricate that process and aren't doing the it. The important thing is the brand. Yes. The brand endures. The brand has put out another movie for us all to celebrate. And like you see in this like modern idea of fandom, almost a rejection of the idea that criticism should exist. And here we're going off into a tremendous tension that we do not have time for. I was going to make a completely different tangent that we don't have time for, but again, we don't have time next week. Case against fandom. Let's go. (laughs) But before we close the episode, I do want to end on a note of solidarity on something that we can actually like hearten our spirits before this episode ends. And it comes from uh, an in these times article about the strike um, and from David Goodman, co-chair of the negotiating committee. Nominative determinism strikes again. <laughs> Quote, here's what all writers know. That the companies have broken this business, the WGA committee said. They have taken so much from the very people, the writers, who have made them wealthy. But what they cannot take from us is each other, our solidarity, our mutual commitment to save ourselves and this profession we love. And then also from television writer David Slack, quote, if they could do without us, they would. If they could break us, they would. They can't, they won't. And I, I think it's that sort of spirit that we can only hope to carry with us in, uh, as the strike continues on um, solidarity as always with the workers for this week. I'm Ryan of the WGA. I'm Noah. And this is punching out. You've been listening to punching out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at punching out Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.